church can be dismissed at this time. And if you are remaining upstairs, you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, journey through this text together. And uh, I, I do pray that it will be a help to us. Um, Kelly reminded me that Matt took a really long time in the announcements. And so I might have to shorten things up. And uh, I think Matt needs to shorten things up because I'm not going to. So Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse number 14 this morning. We're not going to read it again as we've just done that, but um, you can turn there and we will walk through it uh, verse by verse. And so as we begin today, let's have another word of prayer. And as I pray, I ask that you would pray as well, that God would speak to our hearts in this text as we think um, through the scenario that takes place. uh, May our eyes be focused on the Savior and the way that he's still working in our lives today. Let's pray together. God, again, we're grateful this morning to have your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, we're grateful today to have your spirit. He truly does bring us to the truth and sanctifies us day in and day out. God, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. We're grateful that through his sacrifice we have found forgiveness of sins. And God, we understand today that without him, we would have no such hope. And God, we're grateful for you. We're grateful that though we are often a wayward people, you still desire to work in our lives. God, we're grateful that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you set your affection on us that we could become your children. God, we're grateful that you intervene in our lives in ways that we don't understand and we can't comprehend. And I do pray this morning that as we go through this text that you would encourage our hearts, that you would point out areas in our lives that need to be corrected, that you would remind us of your loving kindness and your tender mercies that are new each and every morning. God, as we leave this place today, may we look a little bit more like your son, Jesus Christ, as we stand this morning in awe of your goodness. So work as only you can work. And again, may you receive the glory for all that's said and done here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we open up Mark chapter 9 and we look again at verse number 14, we see that really time just continues to march on as we make our way through the Gospels. We've seen a lot take place in the first half of Mark's Gospel, and as we're going to continue to see today, things don't let up. Christ had just recently been transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and he taught them that these things were indeed happening in the very way that the Old Testament Scriptures had proclaimed that they would. And Though the disciples didn't understand all that was going on, they did understand this. That they could trust Christ. And in that understanding, they continued to follow him. The scene before us today is one like from a movie. It grips our curiosity. It captures our attention. It keeps us wondering what is going to happen next. And as Jesus and the disciples make their way back to the rest of the group, they can tell something is off. The scribes, knowing that Jesus wasn't around, were probably using this opportunity to corner the disciples. 
These men, along with the Sadducees and Pharisees, truly were vicious men. They were like wolves that were attacking the sheep. And when the shepherd wasn't there, they understood that it was their turn or their time to pounce. But when Jesus, or when the people saw that Jesus was coming, they left the scribes and they ran to where he was. They were amazed at him and they saluted him. Now this salute wasn't a military salute, but it was just simply a greeting because they were excited that he was in their presence once again. Certainly they were wondering where he had been and they were hoping now to see him do something great. In verse 16, Jesus addresses the scribes and he says, What question ye with them? Or why or are you bothering them? Or why are you arguing with them? Jesus was addressing this idea in a subtle way that the scribes were being bullies. Certainly the scribes had a more well-rounded knowledge of the scriptures than the disciples did. And Christ was kind of calling them out, saying, why are you doing this? And in this we see Christ's defense of his disciples, and it shows us how greatly he loved them. As this conversation is happening, someone in the multitude speaks up and says, Master, I've brought my son. He has a spirit that has made him mute. We understand that this was obviously an evil spirit. Wherever this boy would go, this spirit would cause him to have seizures. He would cause him to foam at the mouth and convulse violently. So his body was out of control, under the control of this spirit. The man continues on and says, I brought my son here today. For healing. But your disciples were not able to help me. Verse number 19, Jesus speaks out and says, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? And you can sense the frustration, can't you? As Jesus comes to this grouping of people and he sees this boy who is in such poor shape and he sees the the inability of the disciples to do what Christ had already empowered them to do. And Christ looks around and he says, oh, you faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? If you think back, To Mark chapter 6, we have seen that Christ had already given them power to do miracles and signs and wonders. They had already healed the sick and cured those who had long-term ailments. And Christ had taught them, he had prepared them, he had instructed them. And now as he leaves them alone for a short time, we see that they're already finding themselves defeated and flustered. And again, he calls them faithless. In Matthew and Luke's version of this story, he calls them twisted. He subtly rebukes them, showing them that they were off track. And as we think about this phrase of being faithless or twisted, it would seem that without taking too much of a leap, that the disciples, as this man came to them, they were trying to do this miraculous work through their own strength and through their own power. They were believing in themselves, but it was leading to catastrophic failure. They were talking a big talk, likely with some pride, but they couldn't walk the walk. And he says, how long shall I be with you? Or how long 
shall I suffer you? And this was quite Christ's way of reminding them that he always wasn't going to be there. That he wasn't always going to be physically present. That he wasn't always going to physically be able to lead them through the problems or scenarios that come into their lives. Christ had already told them that he was going to go away. And this is simply another way of reiterating that truth to them. And in doing so, he was showing them that they needed to get their act together. And then Christ goes on. And with authority, but with compassion, he says, bring him to me. Speaking of the boy that the father had just described. You see, Christ knew that he could do what the disciples were unable to accomplish. Christ knew that he held the power to transform the life of this young boy. Christ knew that he was able, even when the disciples were not. And so while they were seeking to operate in their own power, Christ was seeking to operate through divine power and authority. And the Bible says in verse 20, when they brought the boy to Jesus, that straightway or immediately, which was one of Mark's favorite words, that evil spirit began to work in him and caused the boy to convulse violently and fall to the ground, rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And just imagine for a moment that scenario that was taking place before the Savior, Jesus Christ. Imagine the disciples as they were thinking, man, we couldn't cure this boy. I'm sure Jesus is going to even have trouble doing this. Imagine the father who's sitting there in, in, in shame almost as he thinks about what his son is dealing with as he aches for his son to be healed and as he wonders what everybody around him in that moment is thinking. In verse 21, Christ goes on to ask a question. He says, how long has he been like this? How long has he been suffering? How long... Has he been tortured in this manner? And the dad, probably now drowning out the crowd and only looking to Christ, says, since he was a child. And we don't know how old this boy was, but we do know this, that this father and son duo and the rest of the family had walked a long and hard road. And I think this speaks to the compassion of Christ as he acknowledges the difficult time they have had. And the father must have found comfort in the presence of Christ. And while other religious groups and possibly even the disciples would have pointed a finger and said, what have you done or what has he done to deserve this sickness in his life? Christ doesn't go down that route. He simply asks, how long has he been struggling? How long has he been tormented? How long has he been in such pain? And as Christ shows this compassion, he does so without pointing the blame. And I imagine to that father, that must have been quite refreshing. Because isn't it true, oftentimes when we see somebody struggling, our minds are quick to go to, oh, I wonder what they did. I wonder how God is getting them back. I wonder what they've done to deserve this. And yet here Christ shows love and compassion to a family that probably had not received much love and compassion for many, many years. In verse 22, the father goes on to describe the situation and says, it's not just this that happens, but oftentimes 
he throws himself in the fire and oftentimes he'll throw himself in the water. The evil spirit throws the boy in the water and in the fire to try to destroy him. And can you imagine parenting a child in that scenario? Can you sense the burden? And as the father continues to describe the situation, it's revealing that he felt comfort in the presence of Christ because he was revealing things that he otherwise probably would have liked to keep quiet. He's crying for help. In this desperate situation, he's crying for Christ to have compassion on them. And I would assume that as he makes this cry for help, as he makes this plea for compassion, it's because they hadn't had much help and they hadn't had much compassion up until this point, but they sent something different in the presence of Christ. As we think through this situation, I was reading through it this morning one more time and looking over my notes, and it reminded me to be careful of how I judge a situation that I know nothing about. Because it's easy to offer solutions to problems that are not your problems. And here Christ is in the presence of this father and this son with a crowd surrounding them, with the disciples there wondering what Christ is going to do. And Jesus speaks. And what he says is interesting. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe. Now, when I read that this week, I thought to myself, man, that sounds more like a Christian cliche than, than solid doctrine, doesn't it? It sounds like something you'd hear in a Disney song. If you'll only believe, right, then everything is going to come true. So what is Christ saying in this scenario with this father who has a son who is being tormented day in and day out to this family who has faced the grief and the shame as people looked on in their situation, offering them solutions that were of no help time and time again? What is this father thinking in this moment when Christ says, if you believe, all things are possible? And what does Christ actually mean by that? Well, he means exactly what he says. That if you believe, all things are possible to those who believe. Now before we go down all sorts of rabbit trails, let us understand also what Christ is not saying. He's not saying that if you believe that you're a car, that you can be turned into a car. And he's not saying that if you believe that tomorrow morning when you wake up, that you're going to have a million dollars in your bank account. Because wouldn't we all go to bed believing that tonight? So what is Christ saying? Really what he's saying is that if you believe in the sense of having faith in God, then you can make it through whatever God is leading you through. Then you can find peace in the midst of the storm when it's raging all around you, that you can have a calmness in the presence of chaos. And as Christ is speaking to this father, no doubt his heart was broken. He was probably at his wit's end, wondering if his son was ever going to find relief. And Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible to them who believe. And then the man replies with words of faith. And what does he say? Lord, I believe. But with tears at the very same time, he says, but help my unbelief because I'm struggling. 
And again, we don't know how old this boy was, but does it really matter? If you spent a day with a boy in this scenario, wouldn't you be at your wit's end? Wouldn't we all be at our wit's end? And in this moment of tenderness, as this man is sensing the great compassion of the merciful Savior as he sees that the words of Christ were not spoken out of a religious nature or, or in pretense trying to get the man to do something that the man couldn't do himself. The man responds to the words of Christ with vulnerability. And he says, I believe, but God, I'm going to need your help through this scenario because I'm struggling. I believe that you're able I believe that you can. I came to your disciples because I've heard of the great power that you possess, of the great power that you have given to them. I came to them, but they were not able to help me. And now here I am, Jesus, in your presence. And I believe. But I need you. I need you to aid me in my belief. I need you to give me something to cling to. I need you to, to, to show me that you're able to do this. And in this cry of submission, we see a plea of dependence. He says, Lord, I'm resting in you, but I need your assistance to make it through this time. David Guzik says this about this man's statement. In this case, this man's unbelief was not rebellion against or rejection of God's promise. He did not deny God's promise. He desired it. However, it seemed just too good to be true. Thus he said, help my unbelief. Basically what he's saying is, I believe you can, but I'm not sure if you're gonna. I know you're able, but there's a part of me that's still struggling with doubt. This man was acknowledging that God was able, that Christ was able to do this, even if he didn't understand how or if he would. His cry was asking God to broaden his understanding and to open his eyes a little more. And it reminded me of the text that Matt preached several weeks ago about the blind man. And as Christ came to this blind man and he, he spit and put, put it on his eyes, the man, what did he say? I, I see men, but they're like trees walking around, right? I, I'm seeing, but I'm not seeing in the fullness. And so Christ extends the miracle and gives the man complete sight. And in my mind, that's exactly what's taking place here. He's saying, Lord, I believe you can, but I, but I need a little more. And have you ever been there in life where you're at a situation that seems like you're, you're not going to make it through and in your heart of hearts, you're believing that God can, but you're still wondering if he's going to. You know that he's able because of the stories of their past, the past, but you're still wondering if that's going to be true for you. And that's exactly the scenario that this man found himself in. He was acknowledging the ability of God, and at the same time, he was acknowledging the frailty of himself. God, you're able, but I need your help. God, I know you can, but I'm struggling. The Bible goes on. In verse 25, to reveal to us that the crowd began to get bigger. And as the crowd got bigger, Jesus rebuked the spirit, calling him out of the young boy. And he calls him by his actions. And I love this thought. And we're not going to follow the rabbit trail too far. But aren't you thankful that God doesn't call us by what we've done? What does he call the spirit? You deaf and dumb spirit. You deaf and mute spirit. Come out of him. So what does God call us? 
sons and daughters as we come to him by faith. And as Jesus calls for the spirit to come out, the Bible says in verse 26 that he rent him sore, meaning that it caused him to convulse one more time. And he had this violent seizure and this convulsing was so great that when it happened, the people around thought that the boy had died. It had taken every bit of energy from him. It had caused his life to stop in a moment. And people were thinking, man, Jesus didn't help the situation. He made it worse. At least the boy was living before, but now he's dead. And much to their surprise, Jesus goes over to the boy and he grabs the boy by the hand. And he lifts him up and the boy arose. What a miracle it was. What a display of the power of God and what a testament to the faith of the Father. What a revelation of the compassion of Christ. And friend, this is a better ending than any Hallmark movie could ever give us. You want to know why? Because it's a real story that took place about a real Savior intervening in the life of a real little boy who was filled with demon possession. And in a a greater way, this story pictures or represents every one of us who were filled with darkness and we had no hope in ourselves or from those around us. And yet when Christ came on the scene and he speaks to us and by faith we trust in him, he lifts us up and we walk in newness of life. And isn't that a good thing this morning? I pray that today you have experienced the newness of life that this little boy is experiencing in this moment. We often make a lot of focus on the dad. And certainly it would have been hard for him to walk through that scenario. But think about the little boy. Think about the boy who never knew, to our knowledge, a day of normal living in his life. Think about a boy who was trapped in his own body. (laughs) He couldn't speak. The spirit had made that a reality. And yet when Christ intervened in his life, everything was made new. And if that's not a picture of salvation, friend, I don't know what is. And we can praise God this morning for the new life that he brings into our lives. As the story continues, certainly the people were amazed at the situation before them. But in verse 28, Mark reveals that the disciples were a little perturbed. They were a little frustrated, right? Why couldn't we cast him out? They were probably already annoyed that Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up into the mountain feeling a little left out, feeling a little neglected. And when they saw this man coming, they were thinking to themselves, oh, Peter, James, and John are gone away. They're doing their thing, but this is our time to shine. And as the father came and said, this is the situation with my son, the disciples said, oh, we can handle this. We can do this. We have the ability. And yet they fell flat on their faces because as Christ reveals to us, they were working through their own strength and in their own power. And when they asked the question, why couldn't we cast out this spirit? Why couldn't we Heal this boy. Christ responds to them with this. This kind can come forth by nothing 
but by prayer and fasting. Seems like a simple statement of Christ, doesn't it? All right, Jesus, we need a little more than that. Prayer and fasting? That's, that's our weapon that we attack the enemy with? That's, that's the arsenal that you have given us to overcome those who are trying to conquer us? Prayer and fasting? And as we've seen the whole story and the scenario as it unfolds, really my, the main point of the sermon or points of the sermon are going to come out of verse 29. And I want to answer the question, why do we struggle? Does anybody struggle here in their Christian life? You struggle to overcome sin? You struggle to overcome thoughts of insecurity towards you and your relationship with the Father? You struggle to overcome bitterness and resentment in your life? You struggle to find the power to take the next step of faith that God is calling you to take? You struggle to stay submitted to the will of God? You struggle to to recognize the love that God the Father has for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. You struggle to understand your purpose in life. You, You struggle in ways that you can't even put into words. And I think the advice or the solution that Christ gives in verse 29 is not just a solution to how we overcome evil spirits in the lives of other people but I think it's a solution that he gives us to how we overcome ourselves because of a truth that was the greatest problem that the disciples were facing in this moment is that they thought they were doing it in their own power and own ability. They remembered what they had done in the past, but what they failed to remember that it wasn't actually them who did it. It was God who did it through them. And any success that we have ever had in the Christian life is not because of who we are, but it's because of the God who is working in and through us. And so we often go to God with frustrations and say, God, why can't I overcome this thing? Why can't I make it past this obstacle? Why can't I make it through this challenge in my life? And Christ is saying, because you're not doing the most basic of Christian principles that have been laid out in the Word of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. As we look at this idea of prayer and fasting today, we understand that those are representatives of two greater things. Because prayer and fasting in their own are simply religious rituals. But the true meaning of prayer and fasting, a true understanding of prayer and fasting, positions us us in a place where God can and will do great things, do do great things in and through our lives. So the big idea this morning is simply this. What would God do through my life if I was submitted to Him alone and dependent upon Him alone? What would God do through my life if I was submitted to him alone and dependent on him alone? As we think through verse 29, I pray that we would keep the rest of the story in our mind and that we would seek to apply the solution of Christ to our own lives as we think about the areas that we have fallen short in our Christian walk. So how can we see God do more in us and through us? And how can we break through or break free from the struggle of spinning our wheels. First off, this morning, we live lives that are submitted to His will. Christ teaches a short but stout lesson here 
as he tells the disciples the reason why they could not cast out the evil spirit from the boy, and it was because they had not prepared themselves properly. I read, again, many commentaries on this passage, and most tend to agree that Christ is not speaking specifically to this type of evil spirit, saying that he or this type of spirit only comes out of a person by prayer and fasting, but he's teaching a greater principle or a broader principle about the lack of dependence or submission that the disciples were showing in this moment. Let's be honest, who would have wanted to be on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured? Who in here would probably admit that if you weren't chosen to go to the top of the mountain, you probably would have had a seed of resentment growing in your heart? Now, they didn't know. They didn't know what was happening on the mountain. But when three people are called out to go with Jesus and you're left behind, how's that going to make you feel? It's going to make you feel left behind. And so as the disciples were then in this situation where they probably already felt a little resentment, if not towards Christ, at least towards the other disciples, a situation presented itself where they were able to do something great through the power of God if they had been submitted to his will in the proper way. And so the first thing Christ compels them to do when they ask the question, why couldn't we cast out this evil spirit? Why couldn't we free this child from the ailment that he had faced for so long? Why didn't the father use us to do this great work in the life of this father and in the life of this son? And Jesus says, this kind only comes forth nothing but by prayer and fasting. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is prayer so important? Why is Jesus hinging the disciples' success in freeing people from evil spirits on these two simple truths of prayer and fasting. How many of you here know that you are supposed to pray? Everybody should raise their hand in this moment. If you're not raising your hand, we'll talk after the service and we'll break things down a little simpler. How many of us understand the principles of fasting from the Bible? That you're giving something up in order to what? To be dependent on God. To show that, that your reliance is on him and him alone. And so as Christ is speaking here, he says this kind only comes forth by prayer. But what is prayer? Prayer is in reality nothing more than being submitted to the will of God. Prayer is saying, God, I want to make sure that I'm walking according to your plan and not my own plan. And think for a moment of all the great prayers in the Bible when people found themselves in impossible situations and as they cried out to God, much of their crying out to God was showing submission to his plan and his will and his way for their lives. The prayer that came into my mind was in the story of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, when Nehemiah heard that the walls were broken down of Jerusalem and he heard of the city being in total disrepair, the Bible says that he wept bitterly, he mourned and he fasted. And what else did he do? He prayed to the God of heaven. And in that prayer, he prayed that God would do great things. But do you also understand that Nehemiah was praying that God would use him to help bring a resolution to that scenario? And if God was going to use him, what did Nehemiah have to be? He had to be submitted to the will of God, to do things in God's way according to God's plan for God's purposes and for God's glory. And as the disciples found themselves away from Jesus and Peter and James and John, 
Jesus is revealing that they had not prepared themselves properly to gain the victory over this evil spirit that had infested this little boy's life. How many of you would admit today that you have a struggle in your life that you can't seem to get over? Do you pray about it? And by praying about it, I don't mean prayers like, God, take this from me, amen. Do you pray about it? Do you earnestly pray understanding that submitting yourself to God's will in the midst of this situation is really the only way that God is going to work in your life through this situation. Think of Paul when he had the thorn in the flesh. How many times did he go to God about this thing that was plaguing him? Three times. And in his prayer to God, he got a response from God, which is uh, the, the, the verse that we read as our verse of the week this week. And what does God tell him? That my grace is sufficient for you. And so what does Paul then say? I'm going to glory in my infirmities. Why? So that the power of Christ can rest on me. What is Paul doing in that prayer? He's submitting to the will of God, saying, God, whatever you want, whatever the outcome is going to be, however you want to work, God, that's what I want in my life as well. And so if we're going to break free from the struggle, if we're going to find a way out of the scenario, if we're going to find peace in the midst of the trial and calmness in the chaos, we first off must be submitted to God in prayer. To say, God, however you see fit and whatever you deem is best, that's also what I want in this moment. Now, wouldn't it seem best for the little boy to be freed from the evil spirit that was plaguing him? Certainly. But if God had allowed the disciples to give this boy freedom from the evil spirit when they were outside of submitting to God's will, who would have received the glory in that moment? The disciples would have. So as we think about breaking free of the struggle, as we think about honoring God in the trials of life when things seem too much for us, the first principle that Jesus is setting forth is that you need to be submitted to the Father in prayer. As we think about Christ's own life and his example in prayer as we Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ prayed, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. As we step outside of the story that we're looking at this morning, and we think to our own stories, as we think to our own lives, submission to God through prayer and the trial that you're facing in your life is the only thing that's going to give you peace in the midst of it all. Because we believe that God is in control, don't we? Don't, don't we? We believe that God is in control. We believe that God reigns supremely and sovereignly. We agree with Paul where he says all things work together for good to them who know God, who, who are living according to his purposes in Romans chapter 8. We believe that though we might not see the good in it, God is always doing something of a greater purpose and of a greater value that we might not understand until eternity. And so if we want to go through life 
flustered and upset and angry and perturbed and, and ticked off at the way our life is going, then we stay unsubmitted to God, we don't go to Him in prayer, and we try to work things through our own ability and through our own power. But if we want to find peace in the midst of those things, then we take them to God in prayer. And the best thing the disciples could have done in this scenario when they were faced with something of of eternal impact is they could have started off the meeting with this father and son by simply saying, God, we want your will to be done in this situation. God, we want you to work in us and through us in this situation. God, we know that we're not able, but we know that you are. And if they had submitted themselves in prayer, which Jesus says is one of their downfalls, then maybe they would have seen a different outcome. And I would say that if we would submit ourselves in prayer to the will of the Father, maybe we too would see a different outcome. You see, prayer is not manipulating the heart of God to get what we want. It's not. And if you think about prayer in that way, you're going to be sorely disappointed with every outcome of your life. Prayer is aligning ourselves with the will of God, understanding that as a good father, he gives what? Good gifts, even if those gifts don't seem good in the moment. And when we view God in that way, when we submit to him in that way, we'll see that God answers his, our prayer according to his will. But it's not just that he answers our prayer according to his will. Do you know what else it brings? It brings satisfaction in whatever the answer is. Because we understand that God works all things according to his will. And so why do we struggle? How can we break free of the struggle? Well, we struggle because we're not submitted. And I think we can break free of the struggle when we live lives that are submitted to his will, and Jesus says that takes place in the form of prayer. So I would encourage you today to give the burdens of your heart to the Lord in prayer. It's simple in concept, but it's difficult. It's difficult in the day in and the day out. The second thing, Jesus says these come forth by prayer. The second thing Jesus says is that these come forth by fasting. Christ doesn't just say that prayer is the way to get things done or to get through the trials that you're facing, but he says these these things come forth only by prayer and by fasting. We've talked about fasting in recent months. I think Dave French did a study on fasting and on Wednesday nights, and uh, heard great things about that. And this whole idea of fasting is, is really laced throughout the whole Bible, from the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. We see occurrences where people fast for seasons. We see occurrences where people fast because of desperate situations. We could think of great people of faith, men and women in the Bible, like David and Esther and Paul, and even Jesus, who when they were facing something paramount in their lives, chose to to remove something of pleasure from their lives to remind themselves that they were dependent upon God. Now, if you're familiar with the Catholic world at all, this is, is what Lent was initially established for, right? In Lent, what do people do? They give up something for the purpose or for the sake of what? Understanding the fullness of God in a greater way. Now, we don't practice Lent, 
but I hope we practice dependence on God. We don't have a set time and a set season where we give something up, but I would hope that in our lives there have been times where we have chosen to give something up to show that we are indeed dependent on God and God alone. As Christ fasted in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him, what was it that Christ used to defeat Satan in his attacks? The Word of God. He was showing that he was dependent on something greater than even the temporary things that Satan could have given him or God would have permitted Satan to give him in that moment. You see, fasting is this idea of laying ourselves before God, showing that we are completely dependent upon Him and Him alone. In Psalm 35, 13, David says this, I humbled my soul with fasting. Do you know oftentimes I think why it is that we don't break through the struggles that we have in life? It's because we're not living lives where our souls are humbled before the King of Heaven. That we're not showing that we are desperately dependent upon Him to work in our lives so that we can move forward in the plan and the path that He has for us. And so, while the first idea of prayer is showing that we're living lives that are submitted to His will, the second idea of fasting is showing that we live lives that are dependent upon Him and Him alone. Have you ever been in a scenario where if God didn't do something, there was going to be a tragic end? I think we've all been there. I think we've all faced something in life where it felt like it was a brick wall over and over and over again as we tried to find a way out, as we tried to manipulate the situation to get what we wanted, as we tried to work according to our strength and our ability to get to the other side. And then finally, when we laid ourselves at the foot of Christ and said, God, I am completely dependent on you and you alone. I recognize that I need you in my life. That's when we saw God do a great work. That's when we saw God bring us to the other side, or at the very least, give us peace in the midst of the thing that we were facing. And as the disciples were faced with this scenario of casting out this evil spirit from this little boy who had been plagued for his whole life, Jesus says the reason that you couldn't do it is because you weren't praying and you weren't fasting. You weren't submitted and you weren't dependent. And so I would ask us today, where are we not dependent upon God? I have, I have never cast out an evil spirit. Um, and quite frankly, it scares me to even be presented with the opportunity. But I've talked to people that have been in scenarios like this. And do you know what each of them have said? That before we ever even enter the room where a person is plagued with an evil spirit, we pray and submit ourselves to God, and we pray to show our dependence on God. Why would they do that? Because they understand that's the only way. It's not through our might or our ability or our strength that we persevere in this Christian life. It's not through 
our goodness or our greatness or, or our own schemes or plans that we make it through the Christian life. Friend, if, if it weren't for God, we would be dead. What's the song we just sang? He holds us fast. And so who then should we be dependent on? We should be dependent on him and him alone. Why? Because he's the one that can do things that are beyond what our minds can even fathom. And I would submit this morning that we will never see the greatness of God working in the scenarios of this life until we are first fully dependent on him. Because what does human nature want to do? We want to find another reason for why things turned out the way that they did. We like the word coincidence, don't we? But there is no coincidences in life. There is simply a God who is reigning sovereignly over every situation. And if that's true, then shouldn't we want to be dependent upon Him in every situation? Looking for His hand to move, looking for His will to be done? As the disciples faced this scenario, the biggest enemy that they had was not the evil spirit within the boy, but it was the dependence upon self within themselves. Self makes us feel good. It lifts ourselves up to think that we're able when in reality we're not. It causes us to project in a way that would cause people to trust in us when the disciples should have been saying, hey, we need God to cast out this spirit from your son. Likely, according to what Jesus says, They were saying, hey, yeah, we can do this. But as we think about the vine and the branch scenario in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus reveal to us? That without him, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So dependence on God means rejection of self. (laughs) And in the world we live in, even in the church, That's something that we don't like to hear. Rejection of self means that I get out of the way so that people can see God. It means that even when God is working through me, it's just that he's working through me so that people can see him. Rejection of self means that we allow ourselves to be placed in scenarios that we have no control over, but we understand that God does. And so we're willing to even suffer hurt and loss for the sake of God doing something greater in our lives. And so I would ask this this morning, where in our lives are we dependent upon self? Where in in your struggle are you saying, if I can just, if I just do, then I'll get through this? Or where are you saying, God, I I don't know if I'm going to get through this? but I'm laying myself at your feet, being fully dependent upon you because I know that in all times and in all ways, you are good. What besetting sin has plagued us for our whole lives and we use the excuse, well, that's just who I am. Instead of saying, God, I know this isn't how you want me to be. And so I give this to you to take care of in my life. How are we showing our dependence upon him? The disciples had been given power, but in this instance, they were leaning on their own strength and it led 
them to failure. But understand, it didn't just lead them to failure for themselves. Who else did it lead them to failure for? This little boy and this dad. And do you understand today that when, as Christian parents or Christian adults or Christian teenagers, we strive to go through life in our own strength according to our own endurance with our own tenacity? We will not just fail ourselves, but we will fail those around us as well. Why? Because we weren't meant to do the Christian life alone. We weren't meant to do the Christian life through our own strength, but through God's strength in us in the form of His Spirit, which is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus Christ. And when we stay submitted to the Spirit of God and we seek to do the will of God, we will see God do great things in and through us. As we think through this scenario of how the disciples... Again, we're, we're likely a little annoyed as they ask the question, why couldn't we cast him out? And as Jesus says, this kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. In my mind, the illustration that Jesus gives of prayer and fasting is best seen in the father who brought his son in the first place. Prayer. Submission to God's will. God, I believe. I believe that you can. Fasting, dependence upon God. But help my unbelief. God, I believe that you're able. I know that you can. I've heard the stories. I've I've, I've read the, the headlines in the tabloids that Jesus did another miracle. And here I am in this scenario with my problem, with my son who has no hope and everybody has has rejected us in society and even the religious people haven't brought us any relief to our situation. Here I am. God, I'm submitting to you. I believe. But help my unbelief. I believe I'm submitting the problem to you. But God, I need you. I need you because without you, there is, there is no hope. And as Christ heard these words of faith coming from a grieving father, he does what he does and he heals the boy. And though this boy went through one last painstaking moment as this demon worked his way out of this little boy as he fell to the ground and everybody thought he was dead as Christ went over and grabbed him by the hand he lifted him up and he felt life like he had never felt it before and so many believers are walking around in the world today thinking they're living the fullness of the Christian life because they can make it look good on the outside but friend it's not the outside that brings life it's Christ's work on the inside And if we would just be submitted to him. Say, Lord, I believe. God, I know. I know that you can. I'm giving this to you. But God, I need you to help my unbelief because I'm struggling in this moment. Do you know what God does with a prayer of submission and a prayer of dependence? He does more than we could ever ask or think. 
And I wonder today, what thing in our lives, what scenario in our lives, what ailment in our lives have we been trying to manipulate and control through our own power when all the while Christ is saying to us, hey, just submit it to me and just be dependent upon me and watch what I do. And though it doesn't mean that he's going to do the miracle in the way that you hoped he would do the miracle, it does mean he's going to do a miracle. It does mean that though the miracle may not be external, the miracle of peace will be internal and it will calm your life in the presence of the greatest storms that you could ever face. And so why do we struggle? I would submit that we struggle. No, I would submit that I struggle. Because there are things in my life that I don't submit to God in prayer. And there are things in my life that I am not fully dependent upon God for. You know what bugs me? When Christians walk around talking about how strong they are. Friend, if you're walking in your own strength, do you know where you're headed? Catastrophic failure. Every time. What does Paul say? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We don't walk in our strength. We don't boast of our strength. We don't talk about how we have persevered and how we have made it through but we talk about how good our God is and the grace that he has given us to take one more step when we didn't think we had one more step to take in us. How many people do you think this father went to to try to find help? A lot. And yet, who was it? After the disciples of Christ had failed him, who was it that gave this man to take one more step of faith to the only one who could help him? It was the good father who loved him and was watching over him every step of the way. And I pray today that as the Spirit points out the areas in our lives where we struggle, that we would submit to him and that we would be dependent on him. And when we do, I think next week is going to yield some beautiful, beautiful results. As we come into the season where we're seeking to be spiritually reset to stay on the path that God would have us. God, we thank you for the time that we could come together this morning. We thank you for your goodness, that you love us in spite of us, that you work in us even when we don't deserve it. And God, I pray right now for those in the room who, let me rephrase that. God, I pray for each of us in the areas of life where we struggle, where we're not ready to give those things up. That through your word and through your spirit, God, you would break us and remind us of your loving kindness so that we would lay these things at your feet, submit them to your will, be dependent completely upon you, and then step back as we follow you by faith and watch what you do in us and even through us in the situation that we have probably despised in our lives. Help us to remember that you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children, even if we don't understand the value of the gift in the moment. God, help us to be submitted. Help us to be dependent. 
If there's any here today who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would understand that if they're seeking to find eternal life and eternal rest and peace through their own self-wills, God, I pray that they would understand today that in themselves they have no hope, but in Christ alone there is hope. Pray that they would repent of their sins and they would turn to Christ by faith and that you would give them the promise of everlasting life that they can enjoy both now and for eternity. Help us, God. I'm persuaded that we do believe. There's a room full of people that do believe. But God, help us in our unbelief and doubts to surrender those things to you. We thank you for your love. Work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.